Leave the Lights On is a true crime podcast with a paranormal twist. Join creator Eliza and her co-host as they explore terrifying true stories and chilling crimes. Growing up, Eliza had an odd obsession with the darkest desires of humanity and an insatiable curiosity about the afterlife. Now, each week, Eliza brings you tales that will make you want to lock your doors, hide in your room, and of course, leave the lights on. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Miles, my name is Miles. Hey guys, it's Sean. Welcome back to all of our Forensic File fans, and welcome to anybody who is new. Forensic Miles is the unofficial companion podcast to the cult favorite show, Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? The answer is yes. There is always more to the story. So today we're going to be covering the Forensic Files episode, Bitter Brew. So do you know what this one's about? Uh, Bitter Brew. Can you guess from the title? Brew. Mm, some some brew dads, some beers. <laughs> some beer. Brew, brew house. Yep. It is this episode we're going to be talking about the Coors family who makes the beer Coors. Personally, I'm a Bud Light guy, but definitely interested in the, the Coors. Yeah, I agree. I actually don't think I've ever had a Coors beer. You've had to have had a Coors. I don't think so. The Blue Mountains? No. I think I'm all about the the natty light. Mm. <laughs> okay, anyway, let's get started. On November 14th, 1873, Golden Brewing was born in Golden, Colorado. Adolf Coors and Jacob Schuler, who were two German immigrants, purchased a recipe for beer from a Czech immigrant. So this was like some sort of like Pilsner recipe. Coors invested $2,000 and Schuler invested $6,000 and by February 1874 the two were producing and selling their beer. In 1880 Coors purchased Schuler's shares and renamed the company Adolf Coors Golden Brewery. The brewery was one of the only, uh, was one of the few that actually survived the prohibition. They sold uh, malted milk to companies like Mars Candies and near beers, which is basically non-alcoholic beer, as well as porcelain ceramics, which is still around today and knows, known as Coors Tech. And supposedly, Coors Tech actually makes more money than the, the beer company, hmm. which reminds me of, um, I think it's Mars, actually. They own Banfield Pet Hospitals. That's like in every PetSmart in the United States. And... Um, they make more money with the vet than they do with the candy. Huh. Yeah. It's really know. interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Okay, moving right along. Because of its limited distribution, um, basically Coors was only distri- uh, distributing the beer to a couple states right around them. Anyway, Coors beer became a sort of a novelty, which created demand and mystery around the beer. Kind of like when you bring 50 West beers to like Nashville. Definitely. 
Yeah, that's basically what people were doing. They were going to the states where Coors was being sold and they were buying Coors beer and they were bringing it to other places. And I think actually that is like the basis of the movie Moki the Bandit. Now I haven't watched that movie, but I guess there is like a huge kind of illegal shipment of Coors beer that is like a big part of that movie. Huh. Sorry. So obviously today we know that Coors Beer is a really successful business, but Adolf Coors was actually able to reap the rewards of his um, business and became a millionaire within his lifetime, which nice. is pretty awesome. Yeah. As of 2015, the Coors family was number 71 on Forbes' richest family list, and they are worth $4 billion. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive for an uh, immigrant company that was started in the early 1800s <laughs> anyway so there's you know the family is wealthy and and he was able to reap the rewards of this this business however there is also a dark side to the Coors family history and i'm not even going to touch on their 1970s hiring process that stipulates quote no women no blacks no hispanics allowed to work there that's a whole different story that we're not even going to get into but there were some mysterious deaths um, in the Coors family. And actually, there continue to be. Um, it's said that Adolf Coors was described as a cold, deeply unpleasant man who had no hobbies or happiness in his life other than his company and making beer. So when the prohibition hit, his one joy in life was basically stolen from him. And he decided to retire and put his son, Adolf Jr., in charge of the company. On June 5th, 1929, Coors committed suicide by jumping out of his uh, six-story hotel window. Um, a coroner de denied to do an autopsy for this death. But did he really jump? There's no way to really know. However, um, many believe that his death was actually a murder. Some say he simply fell, and others say that he died of heart disease and that he didn't fall out of the window at all. So there's a lot going on with this case, and like I said, there's really no way to know because no autopsy was done of his body, which some say might be um, a cover-up a cover up for him actually committing suicide mm. um, because they wouldn't have wanted this to be published anywhere. Um, so yeah, the mysterious deaths are kind of part of the Coors family. In fact, I found a quote that says um, it was a terrible thing to be a member of the Coors family. They were described as really um, kind of unhappy and sort of a dysfunctional um, family. Um, and some even say that his ghost still haunts the hotel walls where he where he died. Huh. Yeah. I, I've um, been to a Coors Brewery before in Colorado. You did? What was it like? Um, well, I actually only saw it. I didn't get inside <laughs> of it. Where was it? Because it <laughs> might have been the one um, that we're going to talk about. Yeah, we were actually in the mountains just overlooking it. So I think it was in Golden, but it was my first time in Colorado. So I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool because that's actually the one that we're going to talk about. Um in the next portion of this episode. Um, so let's move now into the story that we actually came here to tell. And that is the story of Adolf Kors III, or Ad as he liked to be known. 
So Adolf Kors III was Adolf Jr.'s son, which would make him Adolf Kors' grandson. There's a lot of Adolf Kors and there are a lot of Juniors <laughs> in this episode, so try and keep track. So Adolf Kors III was born on January 12th, 1915. He went to Phillips Exeter Academy, which is, as far as I know, an extremely prestigious school. And then he went on to attend Cornell University, where he was a legacy. Both his brother and his father went to that school. Supposedly, he, you know, had a lot of outside interests. He was a semi-professional baseball player, as well as a great skier, and was actually inducted into the Colorado Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame in 1998, which is pretty cool. It's pretty impressive. In 1960, Coors was the father of four children and married to his wife, Mary Grant. He was also the current CEO and chairman of Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. On February 9th, 1960, at around 8 a.m., Coors headed to work from his home in Morrison, Colorado. The full trip was around 13 to 14 minutes. Adolf Coors III was never seen again. He had never he never arrived to work and nobody ever saw him again. A milkman was doing his rounds that morning and saw a car stopped on a bridge over Turkey Creek. This bridge is pretty small and so there wasn't actually room for two cars to fit on the bridge. So one car at a time. And if there was a car on there, you literally had to just stop and wait. So that's what he did. It's my worst nightmare. Yep. <laughs> he stopped and he waited and he honked and he waited and nobody was responding. Nobody was moving the car. And so he didn't know what to do. And he got impatient and he decided to get out of the car to check and see what the issue was. The car on the bridge was empty. There was no driver and nobody in sight. The engine was still running and the radio was on. After waiting a few minutes and supposedly honking his horn a couple more times, nobody returned to the car and he lost his patience. So he decided to actually move the car off the bridge himself so that he could go. And that's when he noticed a red stain on the ground. Immediately after finding this red stain, he called 911. And he actually decided to look around a little bit more and noticed a baseball cap and a fedora that were on the riverbank underneath the bridge. So now he's starting to really think that something is happening here. Fishy. Yep. The milkman reported it to the police and they were able to determine that the car belonged to Adolf Kors III. After some initial investigating, they were able to find a few other items in the dirt, including a lens from a pair of glasses. The FBI is called to investigate. Actually, Adolf Kors Jr., Kors' father, personally called J. Edgar Hoover, who was the current director of the FBI, and asked him to get the FBI involved. Supposedly, J. Edgar Hoover sent more men to help with the disappearance of Kors than there were men who had helped in the Lindbergh baby disappearance. Which, if you know anything about that case, is crazy because that case was huge. Yeah, I'm not very familiar with the case. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of this episode. Within 24 hours of the disappearance, Cora's wife, Mary, receives a ransom note. And here's what it said. Sean, I want you to read it. Mrs. Kors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. If you call the police or the FBI, he dies. You cooperate and he lives. The ransom is set at $200,000 in 10s and $300,000 in 20s. There will be no negotiating. Bills need to be used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, and unmarked. Place the money, this letter, and an envelope in a suitcase or a bag. 
have two men with the car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in the Denver Post, section 69. Sign Ad King Ranch, Ford Lupton. Wait at NA94455 for instructions after the ad appears. Deliver immediately after receiving a call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up or stake out. Understand this, Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. So this ransom note is pretty in-depth. I mean, it seems that whoever is doing this kidnapping has thought of everything. I mean, they've told them not to get the police involved. They've warned them that, um, you know, if they do, they're going to kill him. So upon instruction by the FBI, Mary followed these instructions to the T, except obviously contacting the FBI. Right. However, she never heard from the kidnapper again. Hmm. So they were kind of at a loss. No fingerprints were found on this um, ransom note. However, they were able to find a couple good clues. Whoever typed the letter was a pretty good typist. There were no typos, no issues with the keys, like smudges or anything like that. And they made two spaces before the period, which is the way that you were taught to do it. They noticed that the typewriter also had a defect on the letter S. It sat kind of lower than all of the other letters. They also found another clue. A witness who said they had seen a yellow Mercury sedan that had been seen in the general area a couple times around the time of the disappearance. The witness said that they actually were able to catch a partial plate, which is honestly amazing. And after they did some investigating, the FBI found that the car was registered to a man named Walter Osborne. Hmm. So they kind of start to focus on this, and they start to focus on Walter Osborne. And the interesting thing about Osborne is he was also missing. Hmm. He had disappeared around the same time as Coors had. Turns out, before he was missing, Osborne had made a few interesting purchases. A gun, handcuffs, and a typewriter. It's not adding up good for Walter. Nope. As well as a life insurance policy that paid out to a man named Joseph Corbett. Turns out, Joseph Corbett had a son. Joseph Corbett Jr. See where I'm going here? Lots of juniors. (laughs) Who had been convicted of second-degree murder after killing a man during an altercation. Oh, wow. After, so, Corbett, after receiving a perfect behavior record, Corbett was transferred to minimum security prison, and he actually escaped prison and used the the alter ego, Walter Osborne. Corbett was smart, like medical school smart, like he had always planned to go to medical school. Before the murder charge, he was a student at the University of California, Berkeley, and had an IQ of 148. He ended up dropping out and having some, you know, immediate like police record (laughs) yeah i mean a murder charge is definitely not a good start not great um eight days after the kidnapping corbett's car was found the yellow one uh completely burned despite being burned they were able to find some evidence underneath the car the dirt on the bottom matched the location of Cor's disappearance. And then there was a strange unknown dirt that they assumed was from wherever Corbett had taken Cor's. September 11th, hikers found human remains in the woods. 
They were able to match the clothing as well as a keychain to what Kors had been wearing on the day he disappeared. From holes in the clothing and his shoulder bone, they found that Kors had been shot in the back, which is interesting because this is the same way that the man that Corbett's was convicted of murdering. That's the same way that he died. He was also sh- like shot in the back. Oh, wow. Um, they were more determined than ever now to find Corbett. Even before the body was found, Corbett was put on the 10 most wanted fugitive list. This case was obviously super high profile. Um, Adolf Kors Jr. and J. Edgar Hoover were two of the most influence- influential men at the time. Hoover even went on TV to say that Joseph Corbett is the most wanted man since the American gangster John Dillinger. And it was pretty rare for Hoover to get on TV like this, so it was a pretty big deal. Corbett's photo was published in Reader's Digest, and a woman in Canada recognized the picture. She reported it to the FBI, but by the time they arrived at the apartment she said that she thought he lived at, Corbett was nowhere to be found. Another witness came forward saying that she thought he looked like a man that had stayed in her hotel. She said he was driving a fire engine red Pontiac. Soon, there was a sighting of the car at a different hotel. When they knocked on the door, a man answered and said, quote, I give up. I am the man you want. So I think at this point, Corbett was tired of running and just wanted to admit what he had done and kind of get it over with. It's pretty alarming when you see a picture of yourself on TV. In the, uh, the most, FBI's most wanted. Most yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Corbett was brought to trial and was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Before the botched kidnapping, Corbett had worked at Benjamin Moore, like the paint company, and his co-workers had said that he had been boasting that he was going to, quote, get a big score, about a half million dollars, which is really interesting because that's the exact same amount of money that he, the ransom note asked for. Yeah. Investigators believed that he was done working and he wanted to get rich fast. They said that he watched Kors traveling back and forth from work and pinpointed the Turkey Creek location because Kors wouldn't be able to pass him, which is pretty alarming to think about, that somebody is watching you go home and come back from work and then would be able to pinpoint the best place to get you at a point that you would be able to be kidnapped. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can think of a couple places around Cincinnati that there are these bridges and only one person can fit through the bridge. (laughs) Investigators believe that Corbett parked his car and waited for Kors to come up behind him. He then had some sort of a scheme to lure Kors out of his car. And this is something that's like also really scary to think about because, I mean, I know myself, I, I probably wouldn't do this, but I don't know how I would act in that kind of a situation. There, if nobody was getting out of the car when Kors honked, there would be no physical way for him to get to work without getting out of the car and seeing what was wrong. Yeah. So Corbett was really able to put him in this position that he felt like he needed to help. He felt like there was a reason to get out of the car. And he did, and Kors was able to basically ambush him. Unfortunately for Kors, something went wrong. And Corbett ended up killing Kors right then and there. So there's no way to know for sure if Kors was always going to die that day or if Corbett had actually meant to just get the money, let Kors live, and, you know, run off into the the sunshine. Um, 
Unfortunately, that's not what happened. And investigators believe that Coors was basically killed right then and there. They didn't find a bullet there, though? They didn't find a bullet, but they did find that, like, patch of blood on the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In 1980, about 19 years after being sent to prison, Corbett was paroled and set free. In 1996, he was interviewed by the Denver Post and broke his silence for the first time since the murder. So he was never... He never testified in the case. He never spoke in the ta- in the case. Supposedly, he was going to talk about his alibi, but he never ended up doing that, and I'll get into that in a minute. In 1979, he told the parole board, I see myself as a pretty commonplace man who, through sheer bizarre circumstances, got involved in something notorious. Supposedly, a reporter asked him for an interview at a different time, and I assume he said no because his response was, it's nothing personal. I have nothing to gain from notoriety. I've put it behind me. It's a gruesome memory. So the interesting thing about all of this is that throughout this entire time, he's always claimed he was innocent, which I guess isn't that interesting because I'm sure everybody does everybody that. Everybody says that. But he really ho- held strong to this. And he even talked about this alibi that I was going to say before, that that he was innocent and that he was going to testify about an alibi except that the alibi he was going to testify was a witness that was lying and he knew he was lying Mm -hmm. and he didn't want the witness to go on the stand and lie because he didn't want to get off because of a lie so i don't know this could be nothing this could be something but basically he always said that he was innocent There was an article written where they cover the details of the case, specifically the dirt evidence, and they said, while careful at all times to cover his tracks, Corbett had been writing his itinerary on the bottom of the car. So, you know, in the trial, they were able to match the dirt on the car from the location of Cor's disappearance, as well as the dirt that was found in the location of where Cor's body was found. Kors has made comments about this particular article, talking about how it was well-written. However, he says, it's a work of fiction. He's got stuff in there that, if it were true, it would have been brought out at the trial. I can see why so many people think I'm guilty, that it's an open and shut case, but it wasn't. The jury was out three days. I sat there in the library reading the article, and I was thinking, where did he get all this? So, I mean, this could be something that a guilty person would say to um, try and make himself seem more innocent, um, but I don't know. When asked about bringing his innocence to light, he said, it would be futile to retry the case now. What's the point? It goes against all my instincts, all my conditioning to say anything at all now that would add to my notoriety. So I think at this point, he really just wanted everything to be over. He wanted the whole this whole part of his life to be done with. And on August 24th, 2009, Corbett was found dead with a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. He was 80 Mm. years old, and he had recently been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. One interesting that I found, and I told you I'd I'd come back to this, is that Corbett was kind of obsessed with the Lindbergh case, um, and he actually was convinced that Charles Lindbergh was the killer of his own child. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unlike some of our other cases, this case is basically open and it's shut now. Nobody is looking into his innocence. It is universally kind of known that he was responsible for this crime. Um, 
And yeah, that is basically the murder of Adolf Kors III. Now, one thing I'll say, and I could only find this in the Forensic Files episode. I looked pretty hard to find it elsewhere, but I couldn't. Um, Supposedly, Adolf Kors III's brother also had an attempted kidnapping on him. However, it was really botched and nothing ever happened with that and he was okay. Um, So I don't know. But then there's also some other strange deaths like his aunt committed suicide and um, I don't know. Just a very interesting family dynamic and um, kind of a case that I feel like we don't hear about a lot. Like, had you heard that one before? I have not. Oh, I mean, I guess maybe if you've seen the Forensic Files episode. But, but like, considering that all of those FBI agents were there and it was more than the Lindbergh baby, like, it's interesting that that case isn't more well-known. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry that it's a little bit shorter than the past couple that we've put out, but we will have a nice long one next week. And we'll be out with another episode next Tuesday and possibly another um, mini mini sode. I guess we'll see. Stay tuned. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. See you guys. Bye. Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together.